the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right. Yes, indeed, he is. And good afternoon to you. Good to have you with us. Here is a Tuesday, the 8th day of February. Craig Roberts in your shell-like ears for another edition of Lifeline. We're here Tuesday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. Trying to bring a little bit of sanity to your life and uh, telling the truth, nothing but the truth. Uh, <coughs> so help us God. Choked up on that one, too, didn't you, Roberts? <laughs> Any event, got a lot to talk about on the show tonight. So let's just dive in. <coughs> Probably the one thing that a lot of folks, although perhaps not watching, at least have been talking a bit about, and that is the beginning of the 2022 Winter Olympics. In a very odd location. You know, I've been to China half a dozen times. And um, that part of the nation is not particularly known for being big winter sports regions because of one big significant problem, a lack of snow. But never mind, they've managed to use, I think I read, 56 Olympic swimming pools worth of water to create fake snow to try to pull this all off. And while some might get caught up in those details, let me point to you maybe the bigger topic at hand tonight and one that we've uh, engaged our first guest for. And that is why the Winter Olympics of 2022, for those that were either old enough to remember or have read their history books, seem to be eerily similar to the Summer Olympics of 1936. Joining me with Noor is internationally recognized expert on China, acclaimed author and speaker, president of the Population Research Institute, author of a newly released book on the topic called Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the New Threat to World Order, just recently released by Regnery Press. And Stephen Mosher, as always, a delight to have you with us. Well, it's good to talk to you again, Craig, especially when the genocide games are happening right now. Boy, I tell you, I'm I'm watching this from the beginning. I thought we're heading back to Beijing again. Weren't we just there in 2008? Didn't we just hand them a great propaganda boost? And yet here we are once again. They've lobbied very hard, as they apparently uh, with great frequency always do. Less about the sense of expert athletes from around the globe coming together and showing a sense of uh, world unity and more about, um, well, quite frankly, more about the regime demonstrating what a wonderful country and what a powerful nation communist China is. And you had to watch none of the games, just watch the opening ceremony to take a look at what was, I think, a pretty um, foul display of propaganda for the Communist Party to prove that point. 
Yeah, one of the things they did, of course, which caused India to withdraw from the games, was they had one of the Chinese People's Liberation Army soldiers uh, who had fought uh, aggressively against the Indian Army in Galwan Valley, which is between India and China. The Chinese People's Liberation Army had attacked across the border, attacked a, a uh, Indian patrol and uh, killing and wounding a lot of Indian soldiers, losing a lot of soldiers in the process themselves. And to have him as a torchbearer, of course, was, was, a, was a patriotic uh, signal to the Chinese people, but it greatly offended the Indians. I mean, the games are not supposed to be about um, <laughs> uh, brandishing weapons or, or, or uh, calling, calling uh, uh, your uh, neighboring countries, uh, you know, enemies. And, and yet this, this whole thing has become a propaganda exercise. I mean, the snow is quite telling. I mean, it's kind of a metaphor for the whole games. The snow is fake, and so are the entire Winter Olympics in China. It is a spectacle. It is choreographed. Uh, it is uh, no relation to the reality of life on a day-to-day basis in China. It was interesting. If you look at some of the, the broad shots um, taken from, I don't know, helicopters or a, a blimp or something, you, you see these massive sections of... <laughs> Of of snow drenched mountainsides for the vi- the various uh, um, competitions, and then all surrounding it is all nothing but dirt, which yeah. just seems to be terribly out of place. And I think you've really pointed to the heart of the matter, Stephen, and that is that so much of this really feels like a Hollywood set because it is. It's 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 meant to put out a fake because it is fake, and the intention here is purely for propaganda reasons. Um, even the casual observer knowing the genocide that they have played against the Uyghurs for decades now, and then to conveniently choose one, or at least an individual with clearly a Uyghur last name, in in order to participate in the opening ceremonies. I mean, does China really think, does does the the, the administration or the regime in Beijing really think that the rest of the world can't see through this charade? Well, Chinese leaders often say that Americans in particular, but Westerners in general, are naive, innocent, and easily deceived. And so they do not hesitate to deceive us. Of course, the whole of the Chinese Communist Party's history and its ideology is a deception. It's all a fabrication to make the party leaders look good, uh, just as uh, Nazi ideology was a fabrication to make uh, Hitler and the Nazis look good uh, some decades ago. And we've fallen for it again in China. But, you know, the 2008 Olympics, Craig, were choreographed and orchestrated. We saw that at the time. They bulldozed entire sections of the city of Beijing because the homes were older and they wanted to make Beijing look new and modern. And they just drove people out by the hundreds of thousands into the cold of winter while they prepared for the summer games a few months later. They also painted literally the dead grass green. Which, which is kind of the same thing they did by blowing snow on, on brown dirt mountainsides uh, for this Winter Olympics. They painted in 2008 the dead grass green. But I think they've gone even further this time. Uh, on the excuse of having an epidemic raging in North China, they've kept foreigners out of the country. Of course, few wanted to go anyway. They've kept ordinary Chinese out of the games. All of the people who are allowed into the venues that you may see in the stands or I haven't seen them because I'm not watching the Olympics. I'm not going to watch. I'm not going to buy Chinese-made goods, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, all of the people invited in have been carefully vetted. Most of them, if not all, are Communist Party members. They're told 
when to cheer. They're told when to applaud. They're told how many times to clap. And generally, they only clap uh, loudly for uh, for Chinese athletes and, and not the rest. So it's a very strange spectacle uh, that really puts the propaganda exercise of 1936 in Berlin held by the Nazis to shame. I mean, they've carried this to the to the next level. Yeah, they have indeed. I mean, there were some moments, and I, I did not, like yourself, watch the opening ceremonies, but I saw some snippets of it in reports, and portions of it reminded me of a well-produced Busby Berkeley movie, and uh, and, it, and I thought it was interesting to note that, uh, and we'll talk about this more, Stephen, after the break, but uh, it was interesting to note some of the applause that they were getting from afar, uh, specifically coming from the New York Times, and I, I, I almost, I almost... <laughs> lost it when in one article by the Times just celebrating what a marvelous job Beijing has done at pulling this together, um, how that they've even managed to clear Beijing's historically black air and made it pristine, almost feeling like you were in the middle of the Alps or, you know, somewhere in the, the <laughs> you know, in the, uh, the the heights of the mountains of, of Colorado. And I recall when I was in Beijing in 2007, heading into the 2008 games, that there was much buzz going about because the regime had ordered that all factories, medium, large, and even small, almost home-style type factories, any polluter whatsoever, had been instructed that 30 days prior to the start of the games and 30 days hence, a window that would occupy almost the spread of two and a half months, little over two and a half months, that all these factories were going to be shut down. They were going to be reducing bus transportation and truck even coming in and out of Beijing, all in an effort to try and clear the air so that when guests and um, participants and spectators arrived, and then if they lingered for a while afterwards to uh, become tourists there in uh, China, that they would have nice, clean, pristine air in Beijing. And then, of course, after it was over with and all of the spectators and uh, the cameras from around the world had all been turned off, the spectators went home, the tourists were back in their homes. China went back to business as usual, once again demonstrating that so much of all of this was nothing more than a production designed to deceive. The question is, why is an outfit like even the New York Times biting this into this and taking it hook, line, and sinker. We'll talk about that when we come back after the break. Stephen Mosher with us today, internationally recognized authority on China. He's an acclaimed author and speaker, president of the Population Research Institute, his most recent book. It's a compelling read called Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the New Threat to World Order, newly published by Regnery Press, same fine folks that also happen to operate this radio station. We take a time out. Back to more of our discussion with Stephen Mosher as Lifeline continues. It's said that if you don't like the weather, just wait a few minutes and it'll change. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with China expert Stephen Mosher talking about the Winter Olympics. And um, Stephen, I really want to get to the heart of the question related to some of the the uh, propaganda. <laughs> it seems like a, a propaganda arm of Beijing taking place there at the New York Times. But before we do, I want to back up one second. 
Given what's going on, and and I know the comment that a lot of Westerners uh, tend to look the other way and not be too terribly sharp on such things, does that also include the International Olympics Committee, that they, they, when these requests come in, and I I realize this is a multi-billion dollar undertaking, most countries practically go bankrupt in order to host an Olympics. They build these huge stadiums and then everything falls apart. Anybody wants a good tour of what happened to the Olympics during the anniversary in in Athens, Greece, will get quite the education as to the, the condition of what's left over once the Olympics are gone. But I, I'm just curious, why does the International Olympic Committee continue to entertain these people? Well, I think that the Chinese Communist Party always uh, advances its cause by by using its uh, uh, three magic weapons of of, of gold and drugs and uh, and and sex. Actually, uh, and you know, first of all, uh, Chinese Communist Party officials say openly uh, that they they approach uh, foreign politicians and and international officials uh, by offering bags of money. And if one bag isn't enough, one 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 uh, Chinese official said. We give them two bags or three bags. There has been corruption on the International Olympic Committee in the past. We know that. Uh, I don't have any evidence of corruption in, in association with the uh, placing of the Winter Games in uh, in Beijing in 2022. But it wouldn't surprise me if that's uh, if the bidding war uh, went on that was going on in public for the right to host the games was also going on in private, uh, Craig, in a in a different way, in a different manner. Uh, because that's how we've seen um, the Communist Party behave elsewhere. But uh, as far as the New York Times is concerned, uh, the Chinese Communist Party says, actually its leader, the new Red Emperor, Xi Jinping, has said that China advances itself also by three magic weapons, uh, and those are uh, propaganda, uh, united front tactics, where it goes in and, and hollows out organizations and uses them for its own purpose, and also the People's Liberation Army, which is, of course, what they use when they when they actually go kinetic. But propaganda, they have increased, as I write in Bully of Asia, they have increased their propaganda budget and their United Front budget, uh, not just double or triple. They've increased it tenfold over the last 20 years. They're spending billions and billions of dollars to buy ads on radio stations and put supplements in newspapers. And if you look at the amount of money coming in in advertising revenue from the Communist Party-controlled organizations and companies to the New York Times, uh, you will see why they're writing puff pieces about the Winter Olympics now and really ignoring the plight of not just the, the Uyghurs in the far west, but the Tibetans, uh, the Mongols, all the minorities in China are being persecuted and culturally exterminated. Uh, that's that's underway in real time right now. Well, and the Chinese people themselves, let's also not forget that, yes. that most of this tremendous growth and economic success and these new billionaires, they're all highly politically connected. If you think the average little farmer working in the middle of Mongolia has suddenly become a, a millionaire overnight because he's producing, you know, uh, integrated circuit chips in the backyard, that's not the case at all. And, and sadly, a lot of Americans see much of the, the growth and the largesse. My goodness, I look at the skyline of, of Shanghai and Beijing. 
barely recognizable from 20 years ago. And yet those that have really profited and enjoyed the most have been those that are immediately and directly involved with the Communist Party. And, you know, the other thing, too, to your point, Stephen, um, I've noticed on an increasing basis even films coming out of our beloved, using the term slightly loosely, the beloved Hollywood. Uh, if you look at the long list of production credits, um, there are five, six, seven, eight studios typically involved in many films these days, and not unusual to find out that two or three of them are directly controlled by um, China. And if it's controlled by China, that means it's controlled by the People's Republic Army, and uh, we can kind of conclude from the rest. They're using even Hollywood films and entertainment as a means of of, um, um, enlarging their propaganda reach. Yeah, they really are. And Hollywood, of course, thought it was going to get filthy rich by by selling its movies to the largest uh, ticket-buying audience in the world in China. Well, they're gradually being shut out of China. China wants to become uh, the new Hollywood of the world, and so it only approves a small number of movies to be shown in China each year, uh, cutting back on the profits that Hollywood anticipated making. Uh, But uh, it's also true, you know, I spent back in 1979-1980, I was the first American social scientist on the ground in China, I lived in a Chinese commune for a year. I rewrite and speak Chinese, including Mandarin and Cantonese and Taiwanese. So I was able to speak directly to the people. And yeah, the ordinary people in China have not profited so much from the great economic growth of the last few decades, as have members of the Chinese Communist Party. You've got 92 million members of a political party, which is better described as kind of an international criminal conspiracy. And they... They ride on the backs of the mass of the Chinese people. They don't produce anything but tyranny and control, uh, a high-tech digital dictatorship, and the rest of the Chinese population has to carry them along. And uh, China has only developed because of the hard work of the Chinese people. And what the Chinese Communist Party does is it expropriates that wealth. And nowhere is it clearer than for the peasants, the villagers who live around the cities of China have often suffered having their land expropriated. You know, we have all these modern buildings around Shanghai, the city spreading out in all directions. The villages that sat at the edge of Shanghai 90, uh, 30 years ago had their land taken from them. They were given a pittance. They had their village houses bulldozed and skyscrapers rise in their place. It all looks good, but the peasants are no better off. So that's what's happened on a massive scale in China, a Communist Party land grab, taking land away from poor peasants, uh, leaving them leaving them even poorer in many cases. So, um, yeah, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, in my view, uh, is the biggest killing machine in human history, and its principal, from foremost victims, have been the Chinese people themselves. It has killed tens of millions of Chinese since the Communist Revolution in 1949 and uh, continues today, of course, to execute more people each year than the rest of the world combined. Stephen, let me ask you a question that I know is probably not going to engender me to too many listeners, but, you know, it's high time that we start becoming embracers of truth and and less about the propaganda. I look at the incredible advancement of China economically, militaristically. There have been very few, if any, gains in terms of freedom of the press, religious freedom, those things that from a 
democracy standpoint, we hold dear. In fact, in some regards, I would suggest that in, in recent years, China has actually gotten worse in that arena than it has improved any. And yet I find it curious that for decades, this country that so vehemently fought communism against the former Soviet Union, against expansion of communism in places like the Koreas, in Vietnam, in so many parts of the world. And yet, here we've become, at least economically, by taking advantage of cheap prices and cheap labor, the United States has become one of the leading economic supporters of communism in the world. It's been that way for decades. And I know that both Democrats and even Republicans like to kind of whistle past the the cemetery and pretend as if it's not so. But the reality is we've had our fair share of either wittingly or unwittingly directly supporting this regime for years. Under Donald Trump, at least there was the beginnings of some recognition of that. Sadly, uh, we kind of dropped the ball. And I have to just wonder, when is the West going to wake up and recognize that much of the success and the power that they have is because we've transferred wealth to them because we like cheap stuff? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly what what's happened. And if you look at it from a larger strategic point of view, we have enabled the rise of the uh, political organization, the Chinese Communist Party, that wants to destroy us, mm-hmm. which is not a good thing to do in general. And we enabled the rise of China by transferring technology to it, science and technology. We transferred huge amounts of capital to build the economic infrastructure that they now enjoy today. And we enabled them to access our consumer market, which is the largest consumer market in the world. And we did that back in the 80s, and I was involved in in, uh, the Reagan administration. Uh, We did that back in the 80s because we thought that China was going to go our way. Mm -hmm. Our hope was that economic development would lead to political freedom, would lead to a middle class that demanded human rights. The Communist Party would retreat. And maybe it would collapse as the, as happened in the Soviet Union. Well, let me just interrupt, Stephen. That, 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 that y'all were not not wrong about that point. What happened was that when that big uprising took place, we didn't right. count on Tiananmen Square. We didn't count on them responding by saying, "Oh, you want your freedoms? Well, you know, you're going to be facing down the a tank from the wrong side." Yeah, that's exactly what happened. The the then communist leader Chao Chiyang wanted to talk to the students. He wanted to negotiate. He wanted to modernize. He wanted to end excessive uh, control of the people. He wanted to gradually uh, liberalize and even democratize. He wrote at the end of his life, of course, he was under house arrest for the last 20 years, but he wrote at the end of his life that he saw democracy and he had hoped for democracy in China's future. Well, that didn't suit Deng Xiaoping and the old line, hardline communists at all. They came out of retirement. They ordered in an army from outside of Beijing, which had no local connections and no feeling for the local people, and they mowed down people in the streets of Beijing and in other major cities. 10,000 people in the streets of Beijing were killed, run over by tanks, shot by uh, by, by bullets. And uh, that was the end of, of the democracy movement in China. And instead, they put in a patriotic education program in the schools, from kindergarten through college, you're taught a false history of, of China, how everything has been wonderful under the Chinese Communist Party, and only counter-revolutionaries have been put in prison or killed, how it's a, it's a story that bears very little relationship to reality. 
And, of course, the ideology is a fabrication as well, because the Communist Party is never going to wither away and in, in the future, as, as traditional Marxism holds. They're going to be in power. They want to be in power forever. And you mentioned earlier that China is getting more totalitarian over time. It is. From the 90s on, you see a high-tech digital dictatorship gradually being imposed on China. You have a Great Wall in China in the north, you know, constructed of bricks and mortar, but you also have a Great Wall around the Internet, preventing the Chinese people from getting access to news and information about from other parts of the world. I helped set up Radio Free Asia uh, in the early 1990s. I was on the presidential commission that did that. And our hope was that we would have the same effect on China that Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty had on Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Um, and, of course, we have freedom. We have democracy in Eastern Europe now. Uh, Russia leaves something to be desired. But, but those radio stations broadcast news and information about what was happening in their own countries to people who were starved of that information. We do the same thing uh, in China, but the state, the Communist Party, has stayed ahead of us. Uh, by controlling the Internet. They have battalions of sensors. Uh, they have more surveillance cameras in Chinese cities per person than any other set of cities in the world, any other country in the world. They're watching everybody in real time. They have a political credit system. They call it a social credit system, but it's really a political uh, credit score where they monitor where you go, what you buy, uh, what friends you have, what you say to those friends, how you communicate on the Internet. And based on that, you get a political credit score. And if your political credit score is high, you get treated very well. You might even get a passport and an exit visa to travel outside the country. If your political credit score in China is low, you can't even get a plane, buy a plane ticket within China. Well, you can't and, buy a bullet train ticket. And, and if you want to put it in perspective, I think the one, the 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 the, the two words that that tell the entirety of the story of not just the 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 intent but the heart of Beijing, meaning the communist authorities, and those two words are Hong Kong. Stephen, we're out of time. We got to get you back. We can spend an hour together because this is an important topic that Americans need to understand. We've kind of talked about it in the political dialogue nationally around the periphery. We're not trying to make an enemy of China, but you got to understand this. China's made an enemy of us and much of the West, and its intention is not good. Um, its intention, and just ask anybody that's in Taiwan, its intention is world dominance. And if we're not smart, they might wind up getting it. Stephen Rosher, the book again called Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the new threat to world order, perhaps one of the most significant we've seen in modern history. Regnery Press, the publisher, and more information available online going to the Population Research Institute at pop.org. Our thanks to Stephen Mosher for being with us. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you have a conversation with an immigrant, and I'll speak specifically to immigrants coming from Latin American nations. Um, I have many dear friends from there. In fact, I'm going to be heading down that way eventually here. Um, they'll often tell you that many of the reasons why they emigrated to the United States included the economy in their own nations, concerns over crime, safety, education, or lack thereof. Um, they were concerned about the steady move towards socialism, um, 
lack of police controls. Certainly a country like Mexico has experienced that with the unbelievable proliferation of the illegal drug trade. So these are kind of the, the fundamental reasons why people would leave their home country to come here to find a better life. And while a lot of us may be aware of that, sadly, for some reason, the Democrat Party hasn't quite figured that out yet. In fact, Democrat politicians have been, for some time now, consistently losing ground amongst Latino voters, <laughs> and their political strategists wonder why. Let's get some insights. Cesar Ibarro joins us, Vice President of Legislative Affairs at FreedomWorks. And Cesar, I would suppose the reason why Democrats are losing ground and support here in the United States amongst Latino voters are for many of the reasons why I just articulated that they emigrated to this country in the first place. Am I right? Exactly right. And and one of the big things that's happening right now is Hispanics are no longer the political commodity that the Democrats have relied on for decades. People are waking up and they're starting to notice what the Democrat Party truly stands for. They stand for big government, more taxes, you know, they, they, they don't support a strong, the law enforcement community. Uh, they believe that government should, ha- should be involved in education more than parents. These are issues that go against what the Hisp- Hispanic families want and need, frankly. Um, so while we're not 100% there yet in, in getting a lot of Hispanics to move to the Republican side, the trends are there, and trends speak volumes. And at FreedomWorks, we can only hope to continue spreading that message uh, to the Hispanic community and letting them know that the ideals of free markets uh, and then freedom and individuality and freedom in general is uh, will, will help their bottom lines. Is there a fundamental disconnect here from a communication standpoint? And I ask that question because it would seem to me if the uh, Democrat Party, and I, you know, I, I'm not here carrying water for the Democrat Party, but but if the Democrat Party wanted to improve loyalty and the Democrat voter count, and they're seeing the trends, the numbers starting to trend in the opposite direction, where they're not picking up support, but they're losing support. Doesn't it suggest to you that there seems to be a significant communications gap here that maybe just, I don't know, talking to people and finding out what they want might be a smart way to to go? Yeah, and the thing is, the Democrats know what's going wrong they just don't care. They are pushing their, their socialist policies. I mean, look at what's going on in Congress, right? I mean, they're, they're considering multi-trillion uh, dollar bills. They just passed a massive infrastructure bill that only 10% actually went to infrastructure. So it's, they know what they're, what they're doing. You know, they keep supporting. You look at what's happening out in San Francisco with, uh, you know, the crime and drug abuse that's happening on the streets. They know what is wrong. They just simply don't care. And Hispanics are noticing um, so, you know, call it a comps perspective or call it um, just a lack of, of just a complete disregard for the Hispanic community overall. Well, I, and I don't know in San Francisco that it's that they don't care. It's that I think they have an extremely they meaning uh, and, I, and it's almost time now to include the mayor's office in this uh, office in this. Enough time has gone on. And certainly our our D.A. Chase of Boudin have a very odd, distorted view of what compassion looks like. For you and I, we would see sure. a homeless person on the street and say, well, they might need 
job skills training, drug rehabilitation, a roof over their head, you know, basic life skills training. Let's give them an opportunity to to better their situation. Maybe they, they've gone through emotional troubles. They become reliant upon drugs. They lost a job. So let's do that. That's our version of what compassion looks like. And their version is, well, if they want to stay in a tent in front of City Hall, who be it from us to say no? So there's a very distorted viewpoint as to what what is compassion. Uh, and, and as a result, we see, I think, uh, this broadening chasm between what the Democrat Party has promoted and stood for and what what their voters actually want, and, and particularly amongst the Latino community that is that is very strongly family and concerned about what's happening to those families and their children because of what's going on in our economy uh, with education, uh, even yep. safety in those communities, all of it at risk. Yep, that's a, and I'll give you a great example, um, I, you know, because I think Republicans also have not done a, 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 generally speaking throughout the decades, done a good job in reaching out to the Hispanic community. I was working a campaign a few years ago, um, and, you know, we would ask voters in a predominantly Hispanic community, uh, you know, we would go down uh, 10 questions uh, on the issues, and 7 out of 10, they agreed with the Republican position, but then when you asked them uh, if they were going to vote for the Democrat or the Republican candidate, they said they were going to vote for the Democrat candidate, and we would say, well, ma'am, you actually agree with the Republican policies uh, of said, uh, the Republican candidate, and they said, yeah, but Republicans are not, uh, Republicans are not good on immigration, they hate immigrants, etc. So what we figured is, let's start talking about the issues that we're for, right? What are Republic, what are good issues right now? What are we good on? The economy, you know, under the last administration, the economy was booming. We didn't have the 7% inflation rate that we have today. Crime and safety, I mean, Republicans are strong on law and order. Um, and education, right, in our polling demonstrates that those three issues are the ones that Hispanics care mostly about. So if we can find a way to actually connect the dots and draw them away from the immigration discussion, just let them know that uh, that it, immigration is actually a border, it's a it's a it's a law and order and a crime and safety issue. Right. Well, I think it, I think it's even broader than that. You know, we've we, we've spent a lot of time talking about illegal immigration and the mm-hmm. the sad mistake. And I think the huge mistake of the last administration is never asking the question, why, if they're inclined to cross the border and come here why? I don't live in this country with any desire to move to Canada. Why? Well, because I'm happy here. It's my home here. I have a job here. I have family here. I'm able to put food on the table and pay my bills. People in other nations that can't, and they see, you know, right, wrong, correct, or or an illusion, they see what they think is the promised land on the other side of the border to say, well, if that's all that it takes in order to allow my family to survive, I'm going to cross the border. And I think when we try to couch it in terms of, well, they're just a bunch of criminals here, they're violating U.S. sovereignty, you know, I, I would love to know what the average American would do if they were in likewise circumstances where they had no promise of hope of future medical care, couldn't put a roof over their family's head, had major economic challenges is no help coming from any side whatsoever, I think we wind up doing the same thing. If, if America today was in the condition of, say, uh, Nicaragua or uh, Guatemala or um, uh, Honduras, we would all be heading toward Canada. So, you know, I, I think part of the thing is that we need to get a better understanding of not just that it happens, but to ask the question, why is it happening? And there are things that we can be doing as a nation to help reverse those trends. 
Yep, that's exactly right. And, and you know, the, 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 the situation at the border is truly a humanitarian crisis. But again, right, the, the reason that the, we're seeing a crisis at the border right now is because the federal government is not enforcing U.S. law. So when they're not enforcing U.S. law, it sends a message to, uh, you know, people living in those countries that the border is wide open and they can just waltz in and they will not be prosecuted or deported, right? So what we need to do is, uh, be able to promote a system right where you have strong borders. You you know because the, building the wall and doing all these things are only as good as your enforcement policies. So if you implement a strict, if you just enforce the laws and reforms your immigration system to so where you have it like Canada, right, where they have a a merit based system. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people could get behind that. But at the end of the day, nothing can happen until you have a strong border and you have the will from the president and the administration to enforce immigration law. Well, and, the other, and I think, Cesar, the other big mistake that we made years ago, and that is the fact that we um, we wound up supporting cheap labor coming in from China, or, or production of products, I should say, via cheap labor coming in from China, and if tossed billions of dollars in that direction, we could have done the exact same thing in Central and South America and not only received the cheap labor and as a result the cheap products, but also bettered the station in life for people in those nations and effectively erased any reason for illegal immigration in the first place. So sadly, part of this, like the drug trade, it's a crisis of our own making. Cesar Ibarra, we appreciate the time and the insights. Freedomworks.org for more information. That's freedomworks.org. An interesting and compelling recent article in Real Clear Politics that Cesar has written, you may want to check out, called The Three Issues That Will Win Hispanic Voters. I'm Craig Roberts. Back with more. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, Scripture compels us to be instant in season and out of season. In some cases, that means to uh, do a radio interview even when you don't know you've been scheduled for one. <laughs> we'll figure that one out on the backside. Meanwhile, um, you know, there's been some talk as the United States Supreme Court is um, getting closer and closer to handing down its decision regarding abortion that suggests that, well, Maybe this is not the right time. We don't quite have complete consensus in our nation regarding some of these laws. And when I hear the notion of waiting to change minds to do what is right um, in order to correct either legislative and or constitutional or or uh, Supreme Court errors, my mind goes to the 13th Amendment. And I wonder how many with a straight face would argue that, well, we really should have waited until we had 100 percent consensus in this country before abolishing slavery. Ludicrous, you say. Yes, indeed, true. But the notion of waiting until there's 100 percent consensus to address the abortion issue is an idea that some have been promoting. With more, we're joined now by the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 here on KFAX. Brian Johnston. Brian, I sure appreciate your flexibility here. And in the meanwhile, what of this notion? I mean, well, what, what if the, the prevailing thought was, well, we don't dare pass the 13th Amendment until all 50, or at that time less than 50, but until all the states sign off on it? I mean, how ludicrous is that? Well, exactly. You, you hit the nail on the head. And let's even look at this very issue in 1973. No one was actually ready for what the Supreme Court did in Roe and Doe. In fact, Roe and Doe legalized abortion on demand. If the doctor felt 
that it's okay for this abortion. That abortion was happening, and you couldn't stop it. They were the final deciders. And Americans still don't believe that. Americans, right now, public opinion, if you ask them, they think choice means it's for the hard cases. We need it available for the hard cases. Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton are not about the hard cases. They're about a doctor being free to do an abortion through all nine months. And in many cases, as many of you now know, even late-term and post-birth abortions are being done. Here in California, that the obligation to protect that life by a physician was thrown out the window. Americans weren't ready for that, but they still made that decision. And it's important. The media has distorted Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. They've distorted the meaning of choice. It's important to realize most Americans actually don't like the status quo when they understand that choice means abortion at any time, for any reason, or for no reason in particular, just because it's chosen to be unpregnant. That is where most Americans have never been at. So if it's a matter of public opinion, it, uh, that's not the way to make law, because people usually don't have a very well-informed opinion. That's exactly right. And as I point out, you know, there, there was not a, a consensus in 1864 when the 13th Amendment was ratified. Uh, 36 states, mm-hmm. by the way, back then. Uh, and, you know, America has been a nation that at least, you know, while it struggled with this from time to time, uh, we, we've done the right thing when it was compelled, compelling to do the right thing. Certainly. Certainly saving lives and protecting uh, those that don't have a voice is the right thing to do. And anyone that would suggest that we have to wait until there's uh, a parity or, or a consensus on this, I, I would suggest is just simply trying to, uh, uh, trying to stall for time. Oh, yeah. And we still, I'll be honest with you, again, that's why people need to read my book. We still don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do. We think... And it's very important that we have clarity. But we tend to think of this as black and white. Well, they're going to overturn Roe, and then, bang, everything's done. It's not going to be that easy. And uh, the reason I say that, we expected Roe to be overturned in the Casey decision in 1992. And the Casey decision actually caused greater confusion. And, in fact, it, they used different wording, but they essentially upheld Roe. Roe is still alive, even though Casey was supposed to dramatically change things. Casey preserved the supposed life and health exception, which is at the heart of Roe and Doe. And that exception says, hey, if the doctor thinks he or she, they want to do this abortion, it could impact. He even says the health exception means psychological or sociological health. So that abortionist has complete authority to kill that baby, even after the Casey decision, because that's that exception that gives authority to doctors to kill. So the Supreme Court could, and again, this current, I'll be honest with you, my analysis is our current Chief Justice could actually still throw a wrench in in the nuanced decision. So be in prayer, this still isn't over. This is still a huge battle. It's a spiritual battle for our nation. We all know that. But really, the specifics are critically important. 
So it's it's by no means is this debate over. No, and we certainly need to uh, we need to understand what's at risk here and the challenges. Um, because, as you point out, uh, we've seen some tremendous strides in recent years, even as much as we held out help for the Casey decision, uh, my goodness, almost two decades ago. And we learned then that that was not going to come to fruition. And here we are potentially at the the gates of a new day in America, but we're not there yet so we shouldn't let down our guard, and we need to continue to, regardless, do all that we can to help, yes, indeed, change hearts and minds. I'm not suggesting that, that uh, as I said before, we can't wait to get consensus to do the right thing, but all along the way, we should be working to develop that consensus. Brian Johnson explores these and other pro-life-related issues more in-depth every Saturday morning on Life Matters. That's Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. You can check out the program. We invite you to do so. We also invite you to get more information online at californiaprolife.org. Go online, sign up, help join the fight, help make a difference. californiaprolife.org. Proving yet once again his ability to be Instant in season and out of season, Brian Johnston. Whether you were booked or not, I'm glad you're on tonight. God bless you, brother. We appreciate the time. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.